I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. Love it or hate it, it seems like the remote work trend is slowly coming to an end. Hey, welcome back to the office, Nora. In fact, here at Spark, we've been back at the office for quite a while. And we love it. Right, guys? Yay! We're thrilled about commuting through record-breaking heat, rain, and eventually a cold Canadian winter. Yay! And we aren't the only ones. White-collar employees across Canada and around the world have been slowly but surely making their way back to (laughs) the office. For many Canadians, that means lamenting the loss of flexibility while spending more and more money just to be at work, thanks to the economy. My salary is the same, but gas is getting more and more. I've noticed how much more expensive transit is getting for me, especially per ride. I mean, it costs almost $4 at this point. The price of gas is ridiculous. I don't know how people can afford this. Uh, Everybody's struggling. I want to move to a different country. Meanwhile, in the tech world, major companies like Google and Meta recently announced mandatory return-to-work and hybrid work policies. And Zoom, the company that's become so synonymous with work from home that its name has become a genericized word, even they want employees to come back into work. But what's all the griping about? Today, we're going to get beyond the headlines and dig deeper into why the office world is still fretting over pre-pandemic work culture. And we'll explore alternative tech-driven options. It's hard. It's hard to adjust to. Um, It's emotional. Uh, It impacts your family life. It impacts your professional life. And overall, it's really disengaging. This is Nola Simon. She's a hybrid and remote work futurist. I work with organizations to create hybrid remote strategies and implement them so that work doesn't have to suck. As you can tell, she's not thrilled about return to work mandates. What a lot of employers are not considering is how does this impact how people show up at work and how they do the work? We wanted to talk to Nola to learn how to do return to work and hybrid work right. How should companies think strategically about why and how they're getting people face to face? If the reasons that are being given to return to the office are not really compelling, and in a lot of cases, we've seen reasons that are vague. It's about innovation. It's about collaboration and and doing better. But a lot of jobs don't necessarily have a responsibility to be innovative or collaborative right? Or that that innovation and collaboration doesn't really affect the bottom line. Um, And we've actually seen some some return to office approaches that have been a little bit manipulative. Um, In the news this week, uh, there's actually a story about Grindr in the US. um, And they gave employees two days to really comply with a, a return to office mandate. And many people had moved over the course of the pandemic. And two days is obviously not enough time to really kind of 
get your life in order and get back to the office. So there becomes a secondary agenda. Staff are not necessarily believing the reason that employers are giving, and they're fundamentally not really trusting the necessity for people to actually be back in the office. So with Grindr, for example, I saw several articles and comments this morning that, you know, is this really a cheap layoff? Mm -hmm. Is the intention really to get people to leave? Because 46% of Grindr's employees quit. Wow. Was that the intention? I mean, we don't know. I mean, it's not public. But there's suspicion. Mm. And that's that's an extreme example. But what's happening is is the story's not tracking. Mm. Some employers say that offices are better spaces for productivity, for one thing, and efficiency. What are your thoughts on these kinds of claims in particular? I think that it really depends on the role and it depends on the individual and the person. Uh, I, I had a friend, she was a very in-person person. She liked to be out of her house, but she had a small Toronto house that was less than a thousand square feet. She did not have the ideal type of setup to really thrive at home. And she had two little kids as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So a lot of times it really depends on the personal circumstances and the personality of the people involved. I, in that circumstance, I might find that I do better in the office as well, too. I've been working remotely at home for over 10 years, right? So, you know, it has not been something that I've ever had an issue with. But there are certain specific roles where part of the task that you have to do has to be done in person, right? Mm -hmm. Or there's tools and technology, like, for example, you're in a studio right now. That's a better setup for you to be set up for success, to do better quality work, I would assume. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That is, in fact, why, I mean, in the hardcore lockdown, I was doing this from my, you know, dining table with a ton of pillows around us, which sort of worked, but it wasn't really ideal. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, exactly. So it's nice to have the choice. And honestly, it becomes more engaging for employees if they have the autonomy to choose what's actually going to fuel the work. But what about the idea that, sure, focused work can and maybe even should be done at home, but that in-person work is good for team building, for mentoring, for collaboration, and especially for that kind of sort of lightweight interaction that can help, you know, newer hires kind of find their way in an organization? Isn't there some truth to that? There, there is some truth to it. If the organization is actually committed to doing that well, so many times organizations kind of put things together and it's it's good enough, but it's not necessarily really intentional. My daughter is actually onboarding at a grocery store this week and she's doing her onboarding in person, but there are gaps because people have forgotten what it's like to be brand new, never had a, a job before in your life. And she comes home and she's like, why don't I understand this? Why did nobody tell me? Like They forgot to tell her which door to come in. Oh, right. <laughs> right? It has to be done with intention. So how do you think employees are going to react once they're, you know, as they're being told that they need to spend more time in the actual workplace? I think they're really going to be assessing the leadership and they're going to be assessing the the story that really goes through the whole process, right? So the work that you're asking us to do, does that tie to the mission, the vision, the values of the company? Does it tie to the job description, the task that you've asked me to do? Or am I here really because you've decided that that's a control factor that you need for you to be able to thrive as a leader, as a manager, because you feel uncomfortable, right? You A lot of times there's a perception of loss, Managers and leaders feel that they've lost that sense of control that they had pre-pandemic when they had people in person, right? And it requires a different 
attitude towards managing and leading in, in a remote distributed work environment, right? If you don't necessarily want to do that, you don't have that mindset that you want to upskill and unlearn what you, what you knew before and you want to relearn and you're asking your employees to come in to support that, they're going to be assessing your leadership capability. So what do you think? I mean, if you were sitting down consulting with a management team about how to approach talking to your workers about coming back all or part of the time, like how should you communicate that and what should you be communicating? You should be really focusing on how you're interacting with trust and demonstrating trustworthiness and that respect, right? Because there's everybody comes to remote and hybrid work with an individual perspective on what's going to work best for them. So you have to respect their lived experience because we've made it work since 2020. And there's a resistance now all of a sudden that we're being told that it doesn't work anymore. Because what happens, you know, if there's flooding, if there's forest fires, if there's climate change emergencies, are they going to be asked all of a sudden to go back to remote work just to make it work just like we did when there was an emergency before? And probably we are. So if you're actually constructing a detailed, thoughtful, strategic plan that's incorporating trust at all levels, so trust in the strategy, trust in the storytelling, trust in the processes and procedures, and you're respecting everybody's individual preferences and needs, then you're going to be further ahead in making sure that your employees are actually engaged and supporting the process that you're outlining. From the Spark Archives, 2020, Deb Roy, Executive Director of the MIT Media Lab. There's so many subtle things that must add up to what we're now missing, mm -hmm. body language and picking up on whether someone is actually attentive or not, interested or not, uh, how they're doing, how they're feeling. Just knowing that people are listening to you, well, you can't even tell if they're looking at you, right? If you're looking at a grid of faces on video. But you know, I think if you're in a gathering for your, your story meeting, you might have shared food or drinks or elements of the common experience. And there's the more specific things that you share from an experience together, none of which, you know, you're sitting in your room, I'm sitting in mine, the temperature might be different mm -hmm. in your room, there might be background noises, all these little things, which don't ever perhaps become the foreground that we're going to talk about. But we know we just share that moment in a way that is much more one-dimensional or two-dimensional in the exchange we're having now. Because these online spaces, you're right, they've actually been decades in the making, but they've always complemented basic ways in which we come together and work and play and learn together. Now those fundamentals have suddenly shifted. I'm Nora Young, and today on Spark, we're talking about the current and future state of office work as employees continue to be called back to the physical workplace. My guest right now is Nola Simon. She's a futurist who specializes in remote and hybrid work. We're talking about how employers can approach return to work effectively. Earlier this year, Google CEO Sundar Pichai called some of the company's offices a ghost town. And Matthew Saxon, Zoom's chief people officer, was quoted as saying that the office isn't necessarily a place to get work done. 
meaning in person, may exist more so people can get to know each other, collaborate, rather than putting their heads down for focused work. And this is the argument that it's about connection and water cooler culture. But there don't seem to be specific reasons. Or maybe some companies are having a hard time articulating what those reasons are. Well, I think they're not necessarily being honest with themselves about the reasons that they want to have staff come back to the office, right? And there's a lot of competing agendas and there's a lot of pressure really on the the senior executive teams because for one, there's a lot of corporate commercial real estate involved, right? So that's worth a lot of money. And how do you go from viewing that real estate as an asset to not necessarily an asset is it's a lot of unwiring. Um, having people in your building doesn't make that more valuable, but it might make you feel better because of the money that you've invested in that building over the years. Mm-hmm. Also, you have to consider that the mindset of like, the people who are, are in, in executive leadership, they're being advised by boards and they're all of generally the, the, the older generation that came to age and had success where commercial real estate was and real estate in general was the way that you built wealth. Right. So it comes down to the, the mindset and the worldviews that these people have about what work is, what makes you successful. Say they're mentoring somebody, they're going to teach people that, you know, the, the way that they were successful is, you know, they went out to lunch or they went out for dinner after work. They had drinks with lots of people. It was all done in person. Well, I mean, in a hybrid to remote or distributed work, whatever you want to call it, that's, not easy when everybody's all over the place. So all of a sudden, the stories that you've always told as the success that you've had almost become worthless because how do you recast them? How do you reframe them? So I think what it comes down to is leaders aren't looking at it with a wide enough scope. They're not reflecting enough about what it is they want to have people do? um, And also why? So sometimes the conversation really just gets limited to where and when, but it's also what is the, like the true purpose of return to the office? And you mentioned it earlier, a lot of times it's because they want that connection. Right. And for me, as like, I remember being um, thrown at like a surprise baby shower and I was given gifts. Like I still have those things in my house and I, I'm connected to those people and like I see certain things and I, it brings up those memories, right? Um, presenting in front of a group, getting rewarded and having like your work applauded because you have to get up and stand in front of like 2000 people, right? That doesn't feel the same on a Zoom call. <laughs> Right. (laughs) So that's where the connection, it really comes down to what are you controlling? What are you connecting? How are you connecting? And the sense of community and what creates that sense of belonging. But what about the argument? And you do hear this, that uh, workers who are resisting the return to the office are entitled, you know, that like there are lots of people in the Canadian workforce who have, were going into the workplace throughout the pandemic. And suddenly these people who were hired to go into the workplace are saying, nah, I don't want to go back. Yeah, I actually went to a wedding and that was the topic of conversation for a good half hour. And I think that those people thought office workers were entitled beforehand. <laughs> To be quite honest. Um, So I think fundamentally things get tied to hybrid remote and that sense of entitlement in a way that people forget that it existed before. 
As employers continue to recall workers to the office, do you think we're witnessing the end of remote work, at least sort of for traditional office employees? Um, I think that it really is going to be an ongoing shift of power and influence. And I think that you're starting to see, I mean, you, you have recently seen unions step into the foray. And, you know, did the public service uh, employees of Canada get everything that they were negotiating for, for, uh, you know, that, that telework or, or um, remote work? No, they didn't. But they got a lot more than they had had in writing beforehand. So personally, no, I don't think that we've got the end of remote work. Um, I think that the difference between now and pre-pandemic is that there's just more people who understand the value of it. And that sheer mass of numbers, if that's what they want, they'll find ways to work towards it. They may have to change jobs. They might have to upskill. They might have to change careers. But you do what it is you need to fuel your work and your life. Hmm. Nola, thanks so much for your insights on this. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Nola Simon is a hybrid and remote work futurist. Well, a lot of people go to the office and uh, they do stuff at the office, but then at the end of the day, they feel like they haven't actually done anything that they would consider work. From the Spark Archives, 2011, Jason Fried, author of several books about rebooting the modern workplace. I mean, they're usually 15 minutes, 20 minutes here and there before someone interrupts you. And, you know, it's really hard to get stuff done, like real stuff done in, in 15 minute or 20 minute or even half hour chunks. You know, and, and they build these places for people to go so they can be bothered by their managers and they can be bothered <laughs> by their bosses. And so their bosses and their managers can keep an eye on them. And that's what these places are for. They're sort of temples of observation, I guess, is a way to think about it. They're not places really to do a lot of work, but they're places to be watched and to sort of... Everyone needs to be here, because if they're not here, that means they're not working. I'm always curious about where people actually get their work done. And I've heard things like people say at home, or they'll say at a coffee shop, or they'll say the library, or they'll say their car, or on the commute, you know, on a train or a plane. They'll talk about being outside. So I, I've just heard just about every possible answer besides the office. Hmm. We've just accepted that, that that's just the way it is. And, and I think that that needs to change. So if I feel like my workplace is actually keeping me from doing work, what can I do? Well, it depends who you are. So if, if you're a manager, one thing I'd suggest people try is this idea of a no talk Thursdays. You know, there's casual Fridays uh -huh. and there's all these other things. I'm talking about no talk Thursdays. So nobody in the office can talk to each other. One day, uh, let's say one day a month. Okay. Or let's just pick a day like the first Thursday of the month. No one can talk to each other. Just have a completely quiet office. And what you'll find is that a lot of things actually get done. And people will look mm. forward to that free, quiet afternoon once a month and get a whole bunch of stuff done. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. 
We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nora Young, and today on Spark, we're talking about the future of remote and hybrid work. Look, as you heard from Nola, there are genuine benefits to being in person at work, at least part of the time. If you're being intentional about it, it's better for brainstorming, building trust, forming connections. And hey, I like my colleagues, but there are days when the office can be just a little distracting. Sometimes I wish I could do my job from a beach in Bali. That's the fantasy, right? If digital tools let us work remotely, why not work from anywhere? If I was doing my job from Bali, I'd be part of a group of remote workers known as digital nomads. People call digital nomads all kinds of things, ranging from just influencers to tech employees to trust fund kids. But we were focused on whether or not they were location-independent workers, meaning if they wanted to travel and do their job, would they be allowed to do that? This is Rachel Waldoff. She's not in Indonesia either. I'm professor of sociology at West Virginia University. And with my co-author, Dr. Rob Litchfield, we wrote the book Digital Nomads in Search of Freedom, Community, and Meaningful Work in the New Economy. So how does Rachel define digital nomadism? That's a really good question because that could include three categories of people. That could include entrepreneurs who could just work from wherever. That could include remote employees, of which at that time, especially in the U.S., very few people had that arrangement at work. Obviously, that category has greatly expanded since the time we started our research. And then the third group are freelancers, people who are doing contracts with people in other countries. So they might have quit their job, but now they remain on contract at the same company or they're working for different companies as contract workers. I see. So in your mind, what kind of a temperament does a person need to have to engage with this type of work? A lot of people do wash out from this lifestyle and people will tell you that. You have to be somebody, obviously, who is self-motivated a lot or can build structures around yourself. Just like any freelance work, I think college professors deal with this a lot. We have a lot of autonomy at work. But people who want this lifestyle think they would like that autonomy and they want that Mm -hmm. freedom in their schedule. But not everyone can actually do that over a long period of time or actually finds out they enjoy doing that. So, yeah, so that is, I do think personality is really important, but it also depends on having an employer that's going to be flexible and results oriented as well, and that will trust the employee. Yeah. So you're a sociologist and the book that you co-authored in it, you interview many people working as digital nomads in Bali. Can you tell me just a bit about what you learned, like why they've chosen this life, what they make of the positives and negatives and overall what their experience was? All of my research has always been on why do people live where they live and why do they move why they move, right? And this is this is my fourth book on this. My co-author, my husband, we've written many things together. And we went there with our children and we lived there with the digital nomads for a four-month period after conducting all of our interviews via Zoom and a previous visit when I got the initial sample. You know, there were over 70 people in the sample 
I think it's 17 different countries are represented in the data. And from that, what we gathered was there were a lot of push factors. These are people who got sort of their dream job. They're very identified with work. A lot of them had really great jobs for huge companies that you would know in tech and entertainment and fashion. And after about a 10-year period in their 30s somewhere, Uh they experienced like a quarter life crisis where they felt burnt out and they were wondering what they were doing with their lives. And they felt like they lived in these creative class cities, but they couldn't take advantage of the amenities because the cost of living was high. Their wages were not keeping up with the costs and maybe didn't even start off at the cost, especially for creatives who are often underpaid because they're seen as having a great job and they should just be sort of happy to have it. And so they, they weren't really using the amenities in the cities, in New York, in London, in Dublin, in Toronto. Um, So that's the push factors, you know, the cost of living, the busy culture, the FaceTime culture that existed pre-COVID that honestly, most people really seem to still believe in. Even, you know, now (laughs) you're seeing since COVID, people in their 40s and 50s are like, wait a minute, I do like working remotely. I can, you know, I can do this job from home, you know. But believe me, before we started this research, when I told people what we were working on, people who were sort of Gen X and older were often stop whining, you you know, sort of making fun of millennial workers, making fun of remote work. And now, I mean, it's really changed. But back then, uh-huh. they were saying, I don't understand why I have to be here till six if my work is done. Why am I here writing a blog at work because you have nothing for me to do? So they were just very confused as Mm -hmm. digital natives almost. Like, why are people who are a little bit older than them so focused on FaceTime culture? So that's a big generational divide that I think is changing a lot. I mean, now you're seeing it again with the back to office stuff. But that's a lot of managers, I think, for the most part, and different like owners of businesses that want people in the office to manage them. So that's the push factors. The second thing we looked at is the pull factors. Why would someone choose a certain place, right? So Canada, Portugal, even I teach at West Virginia University, we have a program to try to attract remote workers where we literally pay you if you'll move there, you know? Okay. And so now you have all these places competing for talent and youth and trying to repopulate their states and countries with people and they have to figure out incentives, Bali, of course, is, you know, there's a lot of things that sound like paradise about Bali. But believe me, there are a lot of people that wouldn't want to move there. It has drawbacks. It it may seem like paradise to some people. Mm -hmm. It is for Americans and Canadians quite far away. The water isn't potable. There's a lot of pollution. There's the whole issue of obviously neocolonialism. So there are a lot of things that are different. Whereas if you went to a place like Canada, that's going to feel really familiar to Americans. All the amenities that you might be used to, if you're, you know, your gluten-free pasta, you know, all those, all that kind of stuff <laughs> for people. But the downside is it certainly won't be cheaper than Indonesia mm-hmm. or Thailand or Vietnam or Medellin, Colombia. Like, so the Canada's always going to be, you know, it's going to have to, it's going to be picking a higher income level or people that are able to survive with a little bit more money, probably.
Grains of sand in this hourglass have been carefully measured. 10 minutes, the length of a coffee break. The problem? Well, it seems like some people just don't know how to tell time. And according to the boss, it's costing the company thousands of dollars every year. Now, now don't get me wrong. Uh, I like coffee. In fact, I'd be out on a break right now if it wasn't because, well, I, I'm on a spot. It's up to me to figure out a way for the people to realize that a coffee break means 10 minutes or 15 at the most. I'm Nora Young. Today on Spark, we're talking about the future of hybrid and remote work. My guest right now is Rachel Waldoff, co-author of Digital Nomads in Search of Meaningful Work in the New Economy. So do you think that countries should be trying to attract remote workers and digital nomads? Like, Do you see an advantage in countries having that type of policy? I do. I, I think one of the issues is, you know, how to attract this population. First, getting a handle on who is this population. And so many people want this data for me. And, I, and you know, I, I'm trained in quantitative research, but we don't have good, solid, clean data on this. So I'm very hesitant to cite data from different marketing companies and stuff like that. Okay. But once we get a handle on who exactly, like what are the, you know, define the terms, who are, who is within these parameters, and then how can we attract this group? For instance, if you're trying to attract talent, I think things that are really important we're starting to see is after what's happened with like wildfires and air and water, People are worried about water. They're worried about air. If you're super educated, you may not be willing to live someplace that has environmental problems or conservative attitudes towards the environment. Same with politics. Since we've had different right-wing factions in the United States and white supremacy and things like that, with the election of Trump, people were like, I'm moving to Canada. Like, I, right. I myself yeah. said that, probably, <laughs> you know. And I know that was sort of a joke, but I do think that the politics is a big factor. People are making decisions about who, what kind of people am I going to be around? Some people, for instance, criticize nomadism as mm -hmm. being sort of libertarian because you're, you think you freed yourself from the problems of your home country and you've left your country people to deal with that while you just worry about yourself and your job in your own world, you know, and you've cut yourself off from connection. Yeah. I mean, Portugal has a digital uh, nomad visa program. Canada's planning on introducing some kind of pathway to attract foreign remote workers. I know you say there's not good data on this, but doesn't it sort of go against the idea of nomadism to attract people to try and stay when they are sort of by definition of the term nomadic? Yeah, you know, the nomad term's kind of funny because the thing about it is there's an image that's definitely been put forth in the media, especially like a lot of the outlets that have called us mainstream outlets, they just want to have like a story about how digital nomads are horrible people that are on Instagram. And sure, I mean, the people on Instagram are 
are on Instagram, but that's not most people who are digital nomads, right? So so the average digital nomad, there's the stereotype that they're it's almost like the 60s where they're passport stamping, you know, and they're and they're finding themselves and they're going to all these places. Actually, the people who are the most successful usually base themselves somewhere for a period of time because to keep starting over with your transportation, your currency, your licenses, you know, your workspaces, your your lease, all your language, the food, you know, everything to start over, over and over and over again, your healthcare, that's going to be very time consuming and mentally exhausting. Mm-hmm. So often what people will do is they want to find a, a base, a hub with other digital nomads to form a community. And then they want the freedom to go to lots of other places. And people do that. They don't travel as much as you might imagine, though, once they're successful, especially. So digital nomads have received quite a bit of criticism and not just for the sort of Instagram influencer aspect of it, but especially when it comes to negatively influencing local housing and job markets. So can you just flesh out what the primary concerns are in that regard? That is a legitimate concern. And it's not completely different from what you see in the U.S. with gentrification in general. It has overlapping qualities, I would say. But the things at least that I witnessed, and and we talk about this in our book, is a place like Bali, they already had a tourism industry, right? Mm -hmm. Some could view this as just another form of tourism or an expansion of tourism. Some people could view it as a form of tourism that has a different impact, right? So Digital nomads mainly aren't staying in hotels. So then what happens is there has to be real estate for them. Right. So villas and apartments and things like that. Mm. And what if we start catering to the tastes and needs of the tourists who are now becoming sort of more regular residents? And in the book, we kind of talk about this. We talk about these like three levels of being a nomad. Like the first is sort of the honeymooning stage. You know, in Bali, you see those people with their elephant pants and they're taking yoga for the first time and all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, the next group I would say is once you've stamped your visa and you're renewing it, like you're going to stay longer, like another three months or something like that, that's another level of commitment. I mean, you're clearly able to pay for your lifestyle in some way and you are trying to stay there and you've built some kind of network there that's making you want to stay usually. So are there things that you would call, I don't know, best practices for digital nomadism in terms of being more responsible, contributing to the economy, not being a drain, that kind of thing? One of the first things is, you know, obviously the government and and the people there have to be protected. So their housing, their way of life, you know, the way they live and has to be respected. There's a lot of cultural differences depending on where you go. Maybe not as much as if you're going to a place like Canada, but if you're going from the U.S., but if you're going to, for instance, in Bali, you know, there's a lot of disrespect of the mm. culture there. It, it, it is. When you go there, there are people that aren't dressed the way they want you to dress. They want you to be more modest. Their temples are right by the beach. And so people, you know, their signage not to lie around by their temple. They still do it. You know, there's people riding motorbikes and bikinis and and just things that, that the local people find very 
disrespectful, mm-hmm. even if they may not say it to their faces. You see it in Facebook groups with Balinese people. So respecting the local traditions, the local culture, even if you may find it hegemonic or sexist, the way they treat animals is something that causes a lot of comments about the local culture. And a lot of Westerners on the Facebook pages post you know, about how the Balinese treat their animals. Another thing is, you know, being mindful of giving back. And so doing charitable work, trying not to pollute. A lot of these places, for instance, in Southeast Asia, might not have recycling or even trash pickup. Mm -hmm. They may burn all those water bottles you're using, you know. So thinking about that impact, thinking about, you know, your impact and acknowledging that and sort of not being in denial of it. Because you do see people say things like if you bring up, hey, you know, when you take Uber, you're undermining the local cab service. Mm -hmm. And you'll have people say, well, if they can't compete, they can't compete. Oh, well, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's a very capitalist, individualist notion of survival of the fittest sometimes. So I think those are all things to be super Mm -hmm. aware of. So, of course, as you know, companies around the world are recalling their employees, people who at one point may have considered themselves to be digital nomads. What happens to those people who are now expected to be hybrid workers or even full-time office workers? I think the future is really going to be that the most talented people will probably prefer a pay cut to five-day a week in the office or even hybrid sometimes. A lot of people, when they reach a certain age... They've seen the light. (laughs) They've seen another way to live. And I think that that's going to change. I think there's people are trying to hold out for the old way of doing things. But everyone knows now that many, many knowledge jobs can be done from home. Mm And actually, you can be at least just as productive from home. That's been shown over and over again. I personally think there's also a lot of equity issues with, for instance, as a mother of two small children, having that flexibility to get your work done while they're not home, having your partner more participating in picking the kids up and knowing everything that's going on. I think a lot of that came unbottled during COVID. A lot of older people I've spoken to who I thought would be pretty conservative on this topic, I haven't found that. Even in West Virginia, when I've been on the radio, which is a red state in the Mm -hmm. U.S., People have told me I thought I was going to have to give up my radio show, but I don't because of remote work. It's I'm so happy. I, I felt so depressed. My kids have now been able to move back home and I see my grandchildren because they have a remote job. I think there's a lot of good things about remote work. But at the same time, I think we have to keep an eye on efforts to devalue that work and pay it less and outsource it. Rachel, thanks so much for your insights on this. Thank you for having me. Rachel Waldoff is a professor of sociology at West Virginia University. She's the co-author of Digital Nomads in Search of Meaningful Work in the New Economy. She spoke to me from her home in West Virginia, where she was, you got it, working remotely. You're listening to Spark from CBC Radio. Becoming a digital nomad really happened organically. It started more than 20 years ago when I studied abroad for the first time. I did a semester in Costa Rica and then I did a semester in Australia. 
Hi, my name is Kristen Wilson. I am the author of Digital Nomads for Dummies, the host of Badass Digital Nomads podcast, and I'm also known as Traveling with Kristen on YouTube, and I'm currently based in Manchester in the UK. I always had this love of travel and the opportunities to study overseas opened my eyes to the potential to live your life in different countries. So in 2012, I became a full-time digital nomad, had all of my stuff in storage, and was just traveling the world with no end date, having home bases here and there. The first time that I realized that I didn't have a home base, I was in Peru at the end of 2012, and I was on the train on my way to Machu Picchu, and my friend and I we're on the train with our laptops, you know, watching the mountains and watching the world go by. And I just had this epiphany of, oh my gosh, I'm so free in the world that I can be on this very remote train in the mountains of Peru and I can be doing my work. And so that really opened my eyes to this lifestyle and I haven't looked back since. I can't say that I ever miss a traditional work environment because I have had a couple of jobs where I had to be in an office around real estate and working with other real estate brokerages. And every time I go to an office, whether it's a company that I'm working with or a friend or a family member, like a cousin, I'm reminded of why I don't work in an office. And I don't think that I will ever miss that atmosphere. I believe that it definitely makes sense for countries around the world to have a formalized structure to attract and receive digital nomads as long-term residents. Digital nomads are people who either work for their for themselves, they are financially independent, or they work for a company that is typically located outside of the country that they want to travel to or reside in part-time. And the visa categories and the permanent residency categories in every country around the world hadn't really been updated for a long time. And this is a great initiative that really has no downside for any country to attract uh, independent tech workers or freelancers or contractors or online business owners who are contributing to their economy while continuing to work with their clients or their companies in other countries. And so it really has no downside for the countries who are offering the digital nomad visas. With regards to the criticism about digital nomads that as a community, we are gentrifying locations and pricing out the locals and just making it more expensive for people. This is something that I've been studying for many years before the pandemic to really see if that was the case. And from my research so far, it seems that digital nomads have a negligible impact compared to tourism as an industry. If you look at the number of digital nomads in Bali, for instance, it could be a few thousand digital nomads compared to tens of millions of foreign tourists that come to the island 
every year. And this is the same in Portugal, where when you look at the, the numbers of people who have applied for a digital nomad visa, the numbers of people who've applied for the D7 visa, it's really just a drop in the bucket there compared to the annual tourism arrivals. And so I look at this as certainly a challenge and an issue of the greater tourism sustainability, which is something that needs to be addressed worldwide, but I think it's unfair to point all of the blame at digital nomads. Kristen Wilson is a digital nomad in Manchester, England. I'm Nora Young, and today we're talking about the future of remote work. As we heard, some countries, including Canada, are moving to attract more remote workers and remote employers. But figuring out how to attract outsiders so that it benefits local economies can be tricky. Puerto Rico has emerged as an appealing place for foreigners. It's attracting digital nomads, but also people in the crypto world and investors making passive income and getting tax breaks along the way. And that's leading to problems. Well, there's definitely a colonial gentrification Rich outsiders taking advantage of tax breaks that aren't available to Puerto Ricans, and they're pricing people out of their homes. My name is Federico de Jesus. I'm the president of FTJ Solutions, a consulting firm that advises mostly Puerto Rican and Latino diaspora groups that are concerned with this colonial identification problem. The problem is a real estate bubble that Federico says is caused by those tax breaks he mentioned. Tax breaks made possible by something called Act 22. Uh, Act 22 was passed in 2012 in Puerto Rico that exempts outsiders that haven't lived in the island for the last seven years. So it doesn't apply to Puerto Ricans. It exempts them from dividends, from capital gains, and, and most other taxes. And by virtue of becoming a resident of Puerto Rico, they also are exempt from most all federal income taxes. And the only requirement for them to do this is to live 183 days a year, so half of the year in Puerto Rico, create three jobs and own a home. Okay, so can you explain a bit about what that gentrification looks like on the ground? How are the impacts being felt? Sure. P- places that, that are accustomed to mansions and, and rich outsiders like Dorado and parts of San Juan have been dealing with, it's not just the Airbnb pandemic, as I call it, but also the prices are inflated with these folks that don't have to pay any taxes. They have to purchase a home to prove that they live in Puerto Rico, only live half of the year there. Um, and there's making it just so much more expensive for people to live. But it's not limited to these towns. Remote towns like Gurabo have seen people getting letters that they're being evicted from homes that they've been in for generations. Um, and it's impacted the whole real estate and housing market where uh, housing ownership is actually quite higher than in the States. And now um, it's like 25% more expensive to live in Puerto Rico the real estate prices are, are just skyrocketing. To give you an example, there are a lot of uh, anecdotes of folks that receive these letters. Um, they're not even selling their homes and they just get these letters. We'll buy your house for cash for $5 million. Let's say that they bought it for 900000 or 500000 and they're getting these ridiculous offers just to buy anything. And that's basically creating a, a huge bubble that's making it unaffordable, not just to buy a home, but for people that are renting 
to, to get a home. I'll give you an example. A friend of mine lives in the town of San Germán. He got accepted into the University of Puerto Rico Law School in San Juan, and he couldn't get a rent below $3,000 a month in an area that a few years ago, you could get an apartment for $500. Wow. That's how, how crass the, the situation is. Can you talk to me a little bit about how outside money has transformed the, the job market for local Puerto Ricans? Puerto Rico used to be the hub of, of pharmaceuticals and manufacturing in, in the Western Hemisphere and, and around the world. Those uh, There were tax breaks that Congress awarded for job creation in Puerto Rico that expired. And Puerto Rico started to go bankrupt uh, about 10 years ago. Obviously, the economy fell. And the government decided to do these tax breaks to lure individuals. Um, they're only required to create three jobs. Some of them are, are service jobs, you know, a nanny, someone to cut the grass, even getting uh, family members to be part of that job creation quota. But they're not really creating jobs. That money is not trickling down. What is trickling down is a housing crisis that people had never felt before. Puerto Rico has had all sorts of myriad socioeconomic problems, but not, not housing and not this way. And that's created a, a situation where Puerto Ricans don't have necessarily good professional uh, well-paying jobs. They're getting jobs at hotels. They're getting service jobs. If they're getting jobs at all, uh, if they can actually afford to stay living in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Another group of outsiders transforming Puerto Rico are the cryptocurrency investors. Can you talk a bit about how the crypto boom has changed Puerto Rico for locals? Yeah. So people like Brock Pierce came in after Hurricane Maria to take advantage of these tax breaks that, again, aren't available for Puerto Ricans. And they promised that they would invest money in local charities and local entrepreneurship ventures. And years later, we've seen a lot of broken promises. People have publicly stated that they were cheated out of money that they were promised they never got or bills that they sent that were never paid. And though the law requires that you invest $10,000 in a charity, they mostly set up their own charities to funnel money back to their organizations. And again, it doesn't trickle down to the working class middle-class Puerto Ricans that are sustaining the taxes and the economy on their backs. And these folks are just living tax-free, living in a beach, uh, watching their investment grow, not paying any taxes to Puerto Rico or very few, and not paying any to Uncle Sam. And really, they're trying to force people to to take Bitcoin and change the culture, both socioeconomic and, and financial. And as we saw from the FTX crash, that's not a safe investment for a lot of people, especially if they don't have an nest egg or if they have an nest egg that's very small. So yeah. people were cheated out of promises uh, or, or they just seen these people take over in a way that they'd never seen um, with any group of outsiders before. Mm-hmm. So despite concerns about outsiders, some outsiders coming to the island, you're not exactly opposed to digital nomads. So can you talk to me a bit about what are the circumstances under which you support digital nomadism in Puerto Rico? Sure. Uh, I I was in Puerto Rico for, for a lot of time during the pandemic, and I met someone who was working for AARP um, in the island, and, and he was with his laptop on a beach house, uh, but he had a normal job. He paid taxes just like anyone else. Puerto Rico is open for tourism, and, and we love folks that can move, and if they have a company that can create jobs, even better. A lot of people set up shops. That's all great, but they pay the taxes that everybody else gets to pay. Um, mm. These other folks, mostly crypto, but not all of them crypto, come in, they're exempt from dividend and capital gains taxes, both to the Puerto Rican and to the U.S. government. And that's something that Puerto Ricans can benefit from. They have to pay higher taxes to the Puerto Rico government. Um, and so it creates this unloyal competition where these folks obviously have a lot more disposable money to buy real estate, where Puerto Ricans are saddled with taxes that these people don't have to pay. 
and, and, and it's unfair and, and it's something that, that creates costs for other Puerto Ricans that have to bear the brunt of, of paying for roads and services that these folks use but don't pay for. Mm-hmm. But my sense with some digital nomads, at least, is that they're not necessarily spending long enough periods of time that they would need to pay taxes in those places that they're moving around. Is there any concern that they're doing things like raising housing, but they're not actually contributing to the local economy in any meaningful way or through taxes? Well, it depends on how you define digital nomad. If it's someone who actually moves and becomes a resident of Puerto Rico and pays taxes like everyone else, that's fine. If we're talking about folks that spend a few, a few weeks out of the year and rent an Airbnb, well, again, they're they're not trying to cheat the IRS or the Puerto Rico Treasury out of taxes like the IRS investigates uh, or is investigating. A hundred individuals might be arrested for this or more. Um, and so, yes, the Airbnb situation has compounded the housing crisis. Most Airbnbs are owned by Puerto Ricans, but a large part are owned by, by these crypto folks who are also establishing fraudulent charter schools in, in Puerto Rico that were recently legalized. Um, and they're setting up these schools and they're literally stealing money from folks. The Department of Justice of Puerto Rico is investigating a particular Act 22 investor that has done this. And we're hearing stories that they're being set up all across the island. And again, if people want to help educate folks and doing it on the up and up in the proper way and pay teachers what they need, but if it's just a scheme to cheat people out of their money, on top of the fact they're cheating the government out of taxes, uh, this is just completely unfair and, and should be stopped. Mm. So this reverberates across the economy. It's not just taxes. It's not just housing. It's created problems in all sectors of the economy. So setting aside the concerns about potential tax avoiders for a moment, given that employers are recalling their remote workers, we keep hearing this, how optimistic are you that Puerto Rico will be able to kind of move past the influx of digital nomads and, and other remote workers? Well, if Congress doesn't act to remove the, the tax exemption for those folks at the federal level, this is going to keep coming. And Puerto Ricans, you mentioned our colonial relationship with the U.S., they're very concerned that we're going to become Hawaii 2.0, where Hawaii isn't for Hawaiians. It's, it's for a lot of other folks, but not native Hawaiians. And again, there are a lot of great job-producing, tax-paying Americans in Puerto Rico, um, but this unfair advantage that outsiders are, are having is displacing a lot of people from their homeland, and that's not fair. Mm. Um, and yeah, we can have digital nomads, we can have a, a service economy, but Puerto Rico was built on industrialization and manufacturing and high-tech jobs, and, and those are moving away. And uh, just getting a big bubble of, of outside uh, real estate, crypto folks who've been controversial, who are being investigated, some who've disrespected environmental laws, that's not the type of a development that Puerto Ricans want. Mm. So what advice would you have for legislators around the world who are hoping to transform their countries into places where, you know, they're more attractive to remote workers and even to remote employers? Well, as an advocate for losing Puerto Rico and other diaspora groups like Power for Puerto Rico, uh, I tell members of Congress and Puerto Rican legislators, look, if you're going to have incentives, you should tie it to investment and job creation. The U.S. has an EBT program. If you literally invest uh, a half a million dollars or more, you can get a green card. In Puerto Rico, these folks, if they were required to invest at least a million dollars, create jobs, and the benefits would accrue to Puerto Ricans, that would be something. But I think that unless there's a movement to repeal the law altogether, Puerto Rico won't be past these schemes. Um, and we need tax incentives for companies to create jobs and for Puerto Rican capital to raise up uh, and not just depend on this outside investment. So there has to be more balance. Um, and for any country that's considering this, if you don't tie it to economic performance and you just expect this magical trickle down to happen, Puerto Rico has the experience of 11 years later, the trickle down is actually trickled out of Puerto Rico's population. And that's not helpful to anyone. Federico, thanks so much for your insights on this. Thank you, Nora. Pleasure to have time with you to discuss this issue. 
Federico de Jesus is co-director of the Losing Puerto Rico Project. You've been listening to Spark. The show was made by Michelle Parisi, Samarui Johannes, Samir Chabra, and me, Nora Young. And by Nola Simon, Rachel Waldoff, Kristen Wilson, and Federico de Jesus. And from the Spark archives, Deb Roy and Jason Freed. Follow Spark on the CBC Listen app or your favorite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.